Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for joining us on Heritage Events Live. We're delighted to welcome you to Restoring American Leadership in Patent Law and Innovation Policy. Please welcome our host, John Malcolm, Vice President of Heritage's Institute for Constitutional Government. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, welcome everybody uh, to the Heritage Foundation, those of you who are here uh, in person and those who are joining us virtually. Uh, in a recent Heritage paper entitled The Constitutional Protection of Intellectual Property, one of our speakers, Adam Mossoff, argued that the founding era documents made it clear intellectual property rights, including patents, uh, are property, every bit as tangible and real property, uh, and that they were protected, uh, that they are protected by the Constitution. And he also pointed out that for you know, courts, including the Supreme Court uh, in the 19th century, vigorously protected those rights. But as Bob Dylan once wrote, the times they are changing. Patents and the entire US patent system are under attack and from many quarters too, both here and overseas. We've assembled an excellent panel to address recent developments in patent law and the ongoing threats to the patent system and the consequences, both those that have already been realized and those that might still occur. So to my left here is Adam Mossoff. Adam is a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia School of Law and a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a visiting fellow here at Heritage. He's a graduate of the University of Chicago Law School and a clerk for Judge Jack Weiner on the Fifth Circuit. He's testified several times before Congress and has published extensively on why intellectual property uh, rights have been and should be secured to innovators and creators as property rights. His writings have appeared in numerous scholarly journals and periodicals, and his research has been relied upon by many courts, the Federal Circuit, numerous federal agencies, and the Supreme Court. My far left is Lori Self. Lori is a graduate of the University of Virginia Law School. She's a senior vice president and counsel for government affairs at Qualcomm, where she specializes in intellectual property and related policy matters. Prior to joining Qualcomm, Lori was a partner in the Washington, D.C. firm of Covington and Burling, where her practice focused on U.S. and international technology law, with a particular emphasis on intellectual property law, compliance, and enforcement. And joining us virtually is Andre Iancu. Andre is a partner at the law firm of Irel and Manila. He has a master's degree in mechanical engineering and a law degree from UCLA, where he also has taught patent law. He previously served as an Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property and as director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, a position to which he was confirmed unanimously by the Senate which was something of a rarity among people who were nominated by the Trump administration. As head of USPTO, Andre oversaw one of the largest IP offices in the world, an agency with approximately 13,000 employees and an annual budget of more than $3.5 billion. He also served as the administration's principal advisor on domestic and international intellectual property issues. This year, Andre co-founded the Renewing American Innovation Project at the Bipartisan Center for Strategic and International Studies. 
He's received numerous awards, including the Excellence Award from the American Intellectual Property Law Association, and his work has been praised by publications way too numerous to mention. Several years, as I've just alluded to, there's been a lot of upheaval in the U.S. patent system. Uh, and it's come from all three branches of government, from the Supreme Court, uh, from Congress, from the executive branch, uh, primarily via agency actions at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, the Patent and Tr uh, Trial and Appeal Board, uh, and the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I was wondering, we'll start with you, Andre, if you could take a few minutes uh, and outline you know, why you think this is happening and perhaps identify two or three or four issues in the patent system uh, that you think are having the most significant impact uh, on the innovation economy and also on our, our national security. Andre, to you. Well, first of all, yep. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, John. And uh, thank you for the very, very generous introduction. And great to be with all of you. Sorry I couldn't be there in person. Uh, it is really great, though, to see that the events are beginning to take place. Uh, in person, and uh, the only reason I couldn't be there is because, at least this week, I am here in my uh, uh, in, in Los Angeles, in my office in LA. Uh, but I will be back in DC shortly. Uh, in any event, so um, to to answer your question, well, look. First of all, uh, let me just begin by saying, IP is increasingly uh, more important in our economy. It's been important for a very long time, frankly, from the founding of the country but to a higher and higher degree on an ongoing basis. Um, IP-intensive industries make approximately nowadays about 50% um, of, <clears throat> um, of, of, uh, of our GDP. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, the attention being paid uh, to these issues by the courts, by the legislature, by the administration, as a result, is increasingly more and more prominent. There's a, an increasing push and pull by the various industries uh, that are for, for, for whom IP and innovation are becoming more and more important. So it's not a surprise, frankly, that there is so much attention uh, brought to bear uh, on, on the issue. Um, now, what, what are the main problems, though, given uh, the increased attention from all the corners? Look, in my view, the biggest concern, <clears throat> uh, the, the biggest cause of, of uh, concern is the failure of decision makers to understand and make the connection between intellectual property on the one hand and innovation on the other hand. Everybody basically agrees that we need more innovation. Nobody's going to go out there and say, huh, maybe the United States should be less innovative. Basically, across the board, folks say, yeah, we need more innovation. But unfortunately, I think a lot of folks, and, and even more unfortunately, an increasing number of people, including academics and policymakers, think that innovation just happens by itself naturally, and that IP is an afterthought and perhaps it's just another you know once the innovation happens that ip is then a way to monetize it or collect on it somehow without realizing that the ip is a fundamental necessary requirement 
in order for innovation to happen at the scale that we need it in the United States. The key is a failure to understand that the United States needs intellectual property in order to ensure that the free market participates in the innovation economy. Without IP, the free market does not participate or at least does not participate at the same scale. So to me, going forward, and we'll have a lot more to discuss in this, you know, with specifics as the program unfolds, John, but to me, what we need to establish is a broad-based understanding of the critical need for IP to unleash the free market investment and effort that's necessary in order for the United States to innovate at the maximum of our abilities so that we can uh, increase our competitiveness, both internally, obviously, create more jobs and improve the standard of living of all Americans, but also international competitiveness in the face of, of, of competition from increased competition from China and many others around the world at the cusp as we are of the next industrial revolution. Lori? Yeah, I could not agree more. I think, um, you know, just to uh, use Qualcomm as a case in point, um, you know, Qualcomm is a uh, essentially the R&D arm of the mobile ecosystem. So when you think about each generation of a new cellular standard, you're talking about 10 years of R&D investments that precede that standardization process, which in our case is completely funded by Qualcomm. We do not rely on government funding, and that's true for the vast majority of, um, of R&D intensive industries in this country. Of course, companies in China have a very different dynamic, but in this country, we believe in a, um, a market-based system of innovation, which requires large upfront investments in R&D and patents are critical to that. And just to build off of what Andre was saying, you know, we've see, we see, and it's not limited to any particular party or in administration, time and time again, we see um, administrations um, issue policies that reflect a real misalignment between the aspirations of R&D leadership, technology leadership, and their policies on intellectual property, as, Andrew, as Andre said, as if intellectual property is a kind of afterthought or an ancillary policy that really has no bearing on our ability to lead in R&D intensive spaces. And of course, in sectors like 5G or AI or you know, in the life sciences sphere, um, without a strong patent system, there is no possibility of maintaining that R&D leadership position. And so in the current administration, and again, we saw it in the previous administration, we saw it in the Obama administration, you know, there's a huge emphasis in Congress and in the uh, White House policies on 5G and R&D leadership, and yet we're also seeing um, a series of policies that will, if implemented, undermine our patent system. You know, Congress is just, is in the process of putting together a huge omnibus package on um, China competitiveness, which is all about R&D investments in critical spaces without any uh, focus on the importance of intellectual property to that R&D position. So again, this kind of, this sort of uh, cognitive dissonance or disconnect, as Andre was uh, uh, articulating, is something that's 
not only a pattern that needs to be addressed, but it's a vulnerability that needs to be addressed. Um, you know, in terms of why it's happening, you know, IP skepticism is nothing new. I mean, as Adam has documented in his work, we've had patent skeptics since, since the beginning of the country, with uh, Thomas Jefferson being, you know, a notable case in point. And of course, industry sectors throughout our history have driven this sort of skeptical um, attitude uh, towards the patent system, largely motivated by their own commercial self-interest. So the railroads of the 1800s have been displaced by you know, Silicon Valley. These are companies that largely depend on third-party um, technology and intellectual property. Not surprising that they would like to see that intellectual property come at a lower price. But the stakes have never been higher in terms of um, the, uh, the fact that we are, we are no longer um, at a point where we're competing with Western Europe over technology dominance. We are really competing with a different set of players that have a very different uh, mindset towards technology leadership, and so you know we we can't we can't persist. I think in in failing to treat intellectual property as a core platform of R and D technology leadership. And of course, that that research and development can cost tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, and end up being a dry hole. I mean, the technology might not work, or the drug might not work. Sure. Someone might be true to market. Uh, so it's sort of an assumption that well, you invested it, you know, right. it, will, it will work, and we'll assure you get some kind of return, but. Right, we are talking about technologies where failure is inevitable and where you're pushing the boundaries of, of science. Um, you're, in, you're inventing technologies that current generations think impossible. And the fact that we as a nation have done that throughout our country's history, I think, is in large part due to a strong intellectual property system. Adam? Yes, I um, couldn't agree wholeheartedly with uh, more and uh, with... Uh, remarks by Andre and Lori. Um, it, today is a really auspicious uh, anniversary in, uh, in the United States. I don't know if uh, everyone is aware of this, um, but today is the day that we heard the words, uh, Houston Tranquility Base, the Eagle has landed in 1969. Um, a, a feat thought literally impossible uh, just a decade before we did it. And many of the innovations used to get us to the moon were patented. The lunar lander itself was patented. Uh, the chairs used on the command module in the launch rocket were patented technologies. Um, I mean, the patent system, I often refer to it as a platform for innovation, a, the legal platform, to kind of m remind people that we don't just have platforms in technology. Um, but I guess with today's anniversary, I really should refer to it as the launching pad. It's a launching pad. It's the legal launching pad for innovation. And it has been uh, throughout the history of our country. The United States historically took the position that these were property rights. We were unique in that position, and it was a key feature for our success in the 19th century, where we displaced uh, England as the primary location of the Industrial Revolution, which shifted from the 18th to the 19th century uh, to the United States. Um, and, um, and people often forget that how incredible that was, that when we broke from England, you know, we were indebted, uh, you know, primarily an agrarian society, uh, you know, having suffered a massive war for a very long period of time. We've all seen the Hamilton musical with King George singing, you'll be back. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, that we, that's a joke. We laugh at that. But people, really, people in England really thought that we would come crawling back to, be, uh, to the England to be welcomed back into the Commonwealth. And 60 years later, at the very first World's Fair at the Crystal Palace Exposition in 1851, we were marveling the world with our inventions and vulcanized rubber and the telegraph 
and the repeating firearm and mechanized reaper. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's unbelievable what the mechanized reaper achieved for us. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and so many other innovations, the sewing machine. And of course, all of these were patented innovations. And in fact, the US patent system then spread throughout the rest of the world because people were like, oh my god, how did this happen? And, and people rightly attributed it to the US patent system. And Japan and Germany and many other countries started to replicate our, 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 our system. And that system was a system of property rights, as I mentioned. It provided reliable and effective protection. And it wasn't just for incentivizing people to make the investments to create the inventions, because you could do that through lots of different legal mechanisms. You could do that through prize systems and tax credits and patronage systems and other types of mechanisms. But the key that patents provided that these other systems didn't was that they were property rights. And what that meant was that they didn't just incentivize the creation. They provided the bridge from the act of invention into the marketplace. They made it possible then to enter into the contracts and to obtain the funding. In fact, early innovators like Samuel Morse used their patents as for venture capital financing, as collateral. And, and it has been shown repeatedly again and again and again that patents as property rights serve this key function of bridging what they call in, you know, it, it, uh, for startups, the valley of the death, valley of death. You get to, to shift from becoming a startup to a small medium enterprise and a successful contributor to our innovation economy. And that only works if it's a property right, if it's a reliable and effective property right that you can be protected against infringements of it and that you can license it in the marketplace and that it won't be violated in the marketplace once you're successful. And this has all been lost in the past 10 or 15 years in the United States through a series of Supreme Court decisions. The Supreme Court has re-engaged with the patent system to a degree that we haven't seen in almost 100 years. It's now deciding cases at a rate we haven't seen since the 1920s and 1930s. Um, through regulatory actions, and you know, where the FTC and other, other antitrust agencies take the position that patents are inherently anti-competitive, contrary to all of the economic evidence and historical evidence that patents are a driver of competition, a driver of the free market, as Andre mentioned. Um, and through constant legislation that has weakened or outright eliminated patent rights. And so there's been this shift to thinking of patent rights as this kind of administrative entitlement. It's just part and parcel of economic policy or industrial policy that the United States engages in. Um, and so we can tweak it and take it away and give it and things of this sort and constantly change it. But when you're talking about the type of time horizons that Lori mentioned, decades, um, it took us a decade to get to the moon. It takes decades to produce the next G and 5G takes decades to produce the next um, mRNA uh, uh, technology, platform technology, um, and so on and so on. You know, you can't constantly have variances in your legal protections where people won't make the investments, they won't make, enter into the contracts, and they won't create the inf commercial infrastructure necessary to convert inventions into real-world innovations that benefit patients in the healthcare sector and just ourselves in day-to-day -day life with our technologies like our smartphones and other things that we almost take for granted today. So we'll talk uh, in a little bit about a couple of those Supreme Court uh, cases. And I'm going to sort of throw this open to any of you. And you should feel free, by the way, just to you know, let me know you want to respond to each other. That's fine with me. Um, but so let's go at what the, the major criticisms are. So you're going to get uh, critics of, of vigorous patent rights. You could throw in copyrights, too, if you wanted to. Uh, they argue uh, that the, the period of protection is too long, that the benefits uh, are overrated, that the cost to society uh, are too great. Uh, how would you respond to those critics and sort of what is the, the historical and, and you know, economic uh, evidence that you know, reliable patent or copyright 
uh, rights, increase jobs and, you know, and, and innovation. And, and there's a national security element to some of this, too. You, you know, for the, the space landing, obviously, we have, you know, national security uh, uh, products and systems that use patents, too. Uh, so how would you respond to the people who say, too long, too high a cost? Whoever wants to go first. Well, I, I could start, John, if you'd sure. like. Go right ahead, Andre. Uh, my question to them, to those critics is, and those arguments is, where is your evidence? Where is that evidence? Because the burden is on them. Here's the reality. Uh, the reality is that humans have been on this planet for, depending how you count, <laughs> thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. They've been certainly organizing in civilized societies for thousands of years around the world and yet the state of the human condition just 200 years ago and our modern intellectual property system was established was the same as in antiquity all right just 200 years ago um you know uh when this country was founded the best mode of transportation was in on horseback just like in antiquity uh the best mode of communication was by carrier pigeon or something or uh, just like in antiquity and anesthesia best case for anesthesia was a shot of whiskey uh and that was the best case um just like in antiquity it took two weeks you know to send news of the declaration of independence from philadelphia to richmond virginia just as long as it took alexander the great to send news of his win in the battle of arbella in 331 bc all of the progress that we know of today and we've gotten so accustomed to today and expect more of uh, in increasing fashion every day has happened under the auspices of this intellectual property system so before folks try to do away with it or propose some you know radical modification it is incumbent upon them to provide the evidence that A, it is needed, that in fact, we could have done better without our system, despite millennia of evidence to the contrary. And then it's also incumbent upon them to prove that whatever new system they propose is gonna work at least as well for the United States as the system that the current system that it's being tried that they try to to replace any government frankly that is attempting to fundamentally change and weaken our traditional intellectual property system has a responsibility to its citizens to make the clear case that a it is needed the change is needed and b that whatever they replace it with will work at least as well if, and, and uh, hopefully better. I don't believe that there is any such evidence that weakening intellectual property rights is gonna, going to improve anything. Uh, and, and in fact, all the evidence is to the contrary. Um, the economic evidence is undisputed. I'll give you a small, uh, just one statistic which goes to one critical aspect of the intellectual property system, which is to enable, um, to enable the new market entrants, the startups, the initial investment to take on the established uh, large entities. 
um, you know, for a startup, and this is a, a study done under the auspices of the USPTO a couple of years ago, a startup that receives its first patent increases its employment and sales uh, performance in the subsequent five years by over a third. That's just one first patent on average, sometimes much more. And of course, the more you uh, innovate, the higher your likelihood of success. So there's so many other statistics like this uh, that uh, all point in the, uh, uh, in, in the direction that a reliable IP system is critical for economic growth. So the folks who criticize this need to in indicate why they think that is that is wrong. I just I'll add on that, and I, sure. um, <clears throat> I mean, so I've been living the uh, patent policy debate in Washington for about 15 years now. Um, before that, did a lot of work uh, on IP issues internationally. And if you if you want another data point, it, you know, to Andre's point, look at the U.S. system of innovation versus the system of innovation in countries that historically have not had a strong system of property rights or intellectual, intellectual property rights. But that aside, I think it's really important as we talk about these so-called harms that you strip away the rhetoric and this commercial self-interest and the pejoratives, you know, trolls, et cetera, and, and take an objective look at the economic literature um, and as well as the historical underpinnings of our, um, of our intellectual property system. And one of the things that has struck me throughout um, you know, the last 15, 16 years when I started to see a real shift in US policy away from an imperative of maintaining a gold standard patent system to a policy debate that was really about weakening intellectual property. Um, but what's, what has struck me since that um, point in time, which I would say started around 2005, is that um, it's, it's very difficult to even engage in a fact-driven, economics-driven debate because so much of the policy is sort of steeped in, this, um, in these sort of hypothetical fears around abusive litigation and trolls. And, and so I would just you know, make a real you know, plea, if you will, for let's look at the economic evidence, um, as Andre said. And the economic evidence is robust. Um, you know, Adam made the point that there are different models of innovation, you know, government prizes, um, corporate prizes, you know, outright subsidization. But for, for those um, economic historians and economists who have taken a look at which system of incentive, if you will, drives not just innovation, but a democratized entrepreneurial system of innovation. So in other words, you're not just funding a national champion or, a or you're not shoring up the position of a already dominant incumbent, but you're really creating an environment where everyone has access to property through their own inventive creative endeavors. The patent system, the copyright system, the intellectual property system is by far not just the best at doing that, it's really the only system that achieves that kind of uh, prolific entrepreneurial economy. So, you know, again, kind of going back to the sort of misalignment of policies, this administration, this Congress is very concerned about 
the you know power, if you will, of certain dominant digital platforms. Well, let's think about how you uh, how you address that. You don't you, in my view, you address it by unleashing competing uh, innovative endeavors. You do you 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 dismantle that dominant by position by creating disruptive innovation an opportunity for disruptive innovation. And that's what the patent system enables. And by the way, many of those companies that are now uh, in the crosshairs for being too big, too powerful, they have been systematically trying to weaken intellectual property rights in this country because they know that's a means of shoring up their own uh, position. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying that critically. I mean, it's their self-interest to do so but as we talk about this issue around the pros and cons of the intellectual, of the intellectual property system, let's strip away commercial self-interest and really look at, at the evidence, as Andre was saying, because I think the evidence is clear. Um, and, the, and again, these issues are far too important to, to make policy based on, um, based on rhetoric, you know, based on anecdote, based on a, a you know, corporate propaganda campaign around so-called trolls. Um, and so I, I, I think it's, it's imperative that we, you know, we do take an, a hard and objective look um, at the evidence. So, so you've alluded to patent litigation. I want to get to that uh, in a few moments. Uh, Adam, you can, you can answer the question I asked, but I want to give a, a specific example, and then you can respond how you, you wish. So Andre said, okay, so you know, where is the evidence? Where is the cost involved uh, from, you know, from robust patent protection? And, and critics would, would respond with a, a very recent example, uh, and the Biden administration is being quite responsive to this criticism. So in response uh, to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the World Trade Organization has proposed waiving intellectual property rights uh, for vaccines. And uh, over 60 countries and the Biden administration have announced their support uh, for this proposal. This appears to be pretty much an unprecedented development um, why is that a bad thing? It's sort of feeding into you know, what the critics would say, and, and here's a particular example. Well, that's, that's a great uh, question, and it's a great example. Um, and you're exactly right. So um, South Africa and, um, and uh, India proposed at the World Trade Organization to waive the uh, entire, it's called TRIPS, the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. Uh, which is an international treaty agreement between all of the countries that provides for effective enforcement through, of IP internationally by ensuring that IP laws are adopted domestically in each country, and then if you, they don't do that, then you can get then you can go to the WTO and get trade sanctions against them. So it's not about what's happening in the United States, although if they adopt it under our treaty obligations, if the WTO adopts the waiver, we would then have to implement it domestically, and it would raise tremendous questions about takings and due process and things of that sort. But um, I want to be absolutely clear because uh, uh, that there is zero evidence, zero, that patents or any intellectual property right has blockaded, impeded, or otherwise prevented the development of vaccines or any therapeutic treatments for COVID-19 or access. I assume to the contrary, it's In spurred. fact, it's the exact opposite. <laughs> All of the evidence, as Andre highlighted and, and, and as Lori highlighted in, in a broader context, is, the exact, is, is that 
intellectual property has facilitated the development of, the, of, of these very treatments that are making sure that the COVID-19 pandemic, as horrendous as it has been, right, will not be a repeat of the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, where an estimated 50 million people across the globe died at a time when the world population was 15% of what it is today. Right? So, I mean, that puts in context, yes, I mean, the deaths are horrible, but it is nothing compared to what past pandemics have wrought upon humanity. And, the, and, and who do we have to thank for that? We have the biopharmaceutical industry to thank for that. And who does the biopharmaceutical industry have to thank for that? The patent system and the intellectual property system more broadly, because that is what made possible the framework for them to invest the billions of dollars to create cutting edge technologies like the mRNA platform, which is what led to so many of our vaccines. Um, and there's all of these narratives and rhetoric and false claims, as Lori mentioned in the context of patent trolls in this space. So you hear like, oh, well, the government funded the mRNA vaccine. That's 100% false. In fact, it was such a radical technology that the people who were coming up with it in the 1990s couldn't get grants because people thought that they were crazy. And so they were able to use the actual intellectual property system to get venture capital fi financing of the sort that Andre described to then continue to invest in the development of the technology, the, in the creation not just of the technology, but of the commercial infrastructure necessary to then deploy that technology in an effective way. You know, we refer to the Pfizer vaccine, but Pfizer actually didn't create the, the, the vaccine that it's distributing. BioNTech did, which is a small startup company that is one of the startups that actually developed the mRNA platform. They entered into a license agreement with Pfizer so, because BioNTech had the innovation capital, the idea, and Pfizer had the labor and capital to more effectively scale up production and distribute, distribute it worldwide in order to effectively get this vaccine out there, and it, in fact, in a miraculous time. And I mean, uh, we all have heard Moderna actually creates, uh, created its vaccine in two days, um, which is true. Um, uh, so within two days after uh, the Chinese researchers uh, released in January of 2020 the genome for the COVID-19 um, <clears throat> virus, um, uh, BioNTech invent, it, it created its vaccine in two hours. Um, and so these vaccines were both in the hands of the FDA and were going through testing um, in February of 2020, um, and, which is just unheard of in human history. And this is all made possible by an, by an intellectual infrastructure, a technological infrastructure, and a commercial infrastructure that was developed over decades through billions of dollars that were invested in the foundation of having property rights in the fruits of their productive and inventive labors. Um, and, and so, you know, to the extent that you hear, oh, there's a, you know, they, this will open up for more vaccines. You, manufacturing capacity for vaccines right now is 100%. They can't manufacture anymore. There's going to be somewhere an estimated around 12 billion doses of the COVID-19 vaccine produced by the end of 2021, right? There's only what, I think 7 billion people on, on planet Earth. I mean, there's, this is, this is a, a, a truly amazing achievement that was made possible by human scientists, techn te technicians, and companies that were structured and made possible by, um, by our IP system. And I, will, and I will emphasize, actually, the evidence of the problems um, are evidence of government blockades outside of the IP system. So the 
the, the inability or legal prohibitions against importing or exporting PPE or even the vaccines. We're sitting on a massive doses of AstraZeneca vaccine that we won't distribute to our population because of its less efficacious than Pfizer or the Moderna vaccine, right? Well, you know, if you're in the developing world, you're happy to take a less efficacious vaccine. Why isn't that getting to them? Because we actually have a legal prohibition on exporting that vaccine to the developing world at the moment. That's not the patent system. That's actual other regulations and legislative controls that have been adopted. Yeah, I should point out too that a number of the people who develop these vaccines are, are actually being quite generous in terms of the, you know, what they're charging some countries uh, to, to get these vaccines because of the humanitarian. Yeah, need. the Pfizer CEO, um, when the United States announced that it was supporting the, um, the waiver proposal at the WTO, uh, which is, as like I said, unprecedented, both the waiver proposal itself and U.S. support for it. It's just never occurred in, in history. Um, the, um, the, the Pfizer CEO released a letter where he said, look, I, he said, I personally called leaders of developing countries and said, we will give you vaccine for free. And they said, we don't want it. This mRNA technology is untested. It's, we're suspicious of it, so we don't want it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what can you do at that point? <laughs> Just to, to build on one thing that Adam said, and I could not agree more with everything he um, articulated, but the, there is a really important connection between having uh, a strong patent system and maintaining that intellectual base, people. You know, people, scientists, engineers, people who have the expertise to innovate in these highly complex spaces. You know, what the patent system enables, and you, I think, John, you mentioned, like, the duration of the patent system. You know, very often there is a significant time lag between the invention and your ability to commercialize that invention. And so having a patent system that allows for a period of time in which to bridge that that sort of uh, temporal gap, if you will, is critically important. But when you talk, when you look at the vaccine situation, and, and I could, you know, analogize it to 5G, although obviously the vaccine, um, in terms of the savings of life, is is profound. But what we do builds on decades of pre-existing technology and pre-existing intellectual know-how, if you if you if you will. And when you weaken the patent system in a market-based economy you create not only disincentives to invest in R&D, you create disincentives for people to actually stay in those fields, to study in those fields, to uh, you, make, you create disincentives for companies to be able to hire the best talent in the world. So, you know, we are our engineers. That's our lifeblood. And, you know, if, if we can't continue making these big upfront investments, um, not only does it impede our ability to maintain that incredible pool of talent, but it also impacts this, the pipeline of talent coming through our university system. And we see that in a very real way um, it, with the engineering schools that are now um, educating our um, most talented engineers. A lot of those folks are going into areas of innovation that are candidly much more of the um, you know, sort of digital platform model um, than they are of, you know, sort of hard R&D-based wireless communications. And I'm sure that's happening in other fields as well. So I just, I just wanted to make that point because I think it's a critically important point that patents not only enable or incentivize investments in R&D, they incentivize investments in a talent pool that once you've lost it, 
it's incredibly difficult to to get it back. And you know, you look at um, countries in in Asia, for example, Korea is a good example where they made huge investments in their talent pipeline, and it's paying off, you know, in really important ways. For example, in the semiconductor industry, again. You know, we, I think, as a country, talk about imp how important STEM is and maintaining a STEM pipeline, but we fail to make those connections between our intellectual property system and, and our ability to not only incentivize uh, young people to, to study in these fields, but to create job opportunities. If, if, you don't, if, if there's no employment opportunity that leverages your area of expertise, why on earth would you study in that field? And I think we've as we think about weakening of our patent system, we've also weakening, we've weakened that talent pipeline. So I want to make sure we have time for one or two questions. And so I'm going to combine three questions I was going to ask sort of into one. There is a common theme, which is you've referred to, to patent litigation. And Laurie, at one point you made reference to, to patent trolls. So I'm going to ask sort of about three developments have happened, and I'm going to call on each of you, and you can respond to whichever one of those three, hopefully maybe even different ones. Uh, so one is the, the, the patent troll issue, the, sort of the development of private funding of, uh, of patent litigation. That, that seems to be a relatively new uh, phenomenon. Uh, Adam, you made reference to the fact that the Supreme Court has not only been dipping its toe in the water in terms of patent law, but really they're or if not in the deep end of the pool, pretty close. Uh, and there are a couple of cases that have had a significant impact. Uh, one is a new one. So, so back in 2006 in the eBay versus Merck Exchange case, the Supreme Court limited the ability of, of patent holders to get uh, injunctions uh, for violations of their, their patent rights. And then, then just this year, uh, there was a case involving the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, uh, which is, you know, it's been controversial since it was created in the America Invents Act. Uh, it's resulted in four Supreme Court uh, decisions, including this uh, terms, uh, you know, U.S. versus Arthrex. And so uh, you could talk about any one of these issues, general sort of trends uh, in, uh, in patent litigation, what the reaction has been, what this all means. Uh, and Andre, let's start with you. All right, great. Uh, so first of all, before I get to those specific questions, uh, John, let me just uh, quickly comment on the vaccine waiver issue because it really is probably the most important intellectual property issue of the day. Um, I view the waiver proposal and the debate surrounding it and the administration's suggestion that it supports some sort of a waiver as tragic. I view it as tragic for at least two reasons. Number one, um, I think it will have a detrimental effect, the exact opposite of what the proponents are asking for. And I think it's going to result in more people getting hurt around the world from the pandemic and not less. That's number one. Let me explain that very quickly. Look, we're in the middle of new waves around the world, new variants. It is absolutely clear that more innovation, more um, treatments need to be developed not fewer in the future. Knowing that COVID-19 technologies will be appropriated as soon as they are successfully developed, who in the private sector is going to invest the billions of dollars? Because you know now ahead of time, if the vaccine, if, if, I'm sorry, if the waiver goes through, 
knowing ahead of time that it will not be protected, that investment, who's going to do that? And we are in absolutely critical need for treatments and additional developments down the line. And we need everyone in the private sector involved, not just the established firms, but up and coming startups, private equity, uh, venture capital, everyone needs to get in the game. So that's number one. Number two, this in continuous international discussion about the waiver of IP rights, which will not get more shots, hot shots into people's arms, in fact, most likely less. This discussion is masking the real issues behind inequitable distribution of vaccines around the world. And those are actual issues. It is actually important to have a more equitable distribution of vaccines around the world. Countries are in fact hoarding vaccines and other countries are suffering as a result. Something needs to be done. Governments should not be permitted to hide behind this red herring of an argument surrounding IP waivers and instead should focus the international discussion on the issues that really matter that will like expert controls as Adam mentioned as local uh, uh, regulatory controls as infrastructure issues such as refrigerated trucks for delivering of vaccine as supply pipelines and so on those are real issues that governments need to address on the international scale in order to get people around the world treated and vaccinated. And governments should not be hiding behind this issue of IP waivers, which will actually do more harm than good. So for those two reasons, and actually quite a few more, I think uh, it's a very harmful uh, proposal and harmful discussion. Um, now, to your question surrounding patent trolls, I'll just, let me just answer one bit of that, and then I'm sure uh, Lori and Adam have further thoughts. Um, the um, the rhetoric surrounding patent trolls and uh, quote bad patents or whatever uh, is the term or pejorative term of the day uh, is and has been used for a long period of time, probably at least a decade, maybe two now, in order to drive a narrative that has taken hold pervasively in all circles that IP is a barrier to innovation, which is a counterfactual argument, counterfactual narrative. We all know that IP, as we have discussed, has been a catalyst to private investment-based in innovation. And the sad part is that this simple phraseology, whether it's patent trolls or uh, bad patents or whatever, is um, is driving this harmful narrative. To one of Lori's earlier points, it is really dangerous for governments to make policy decisions based on such slogans and rhetoric. Let's be specific about the actual issues that you perceive and if they and let's put evidence behind them and then let's address the real issues that actually do exist if they do so exist. You know, China is a centralized government. They have a very specific plan of innovation for the next 5, 10, 15 years. We are a free market economy. If we kill intellectual property through these slogans or weaken them, 
And if that is going to weaken or eliminate private investment, what choice does a free market economy like the United States have left? If we disable our free market system, how are we going to compete? So, um, uh, so my caution to policymakers is whenever you hear these buzzwords, which are just pure pejoratives, ask the people who are telling you about them for specifics. Ask them, what exactly is a patent troll that you have in mind? Who are those people? What is the actual evidence and how actually are they harming folks? And what is the actual harm in the marketplace? And then once we have identified those with evidence behind them, we can start talking about policy specifics. But waving arms with pejorative terminology has proven to be harmful and should be avoided. Quick thoughts on uh, perhaps the eBay decision or the Arthrex decision? Well, um, so I'll let Adam comment on Arthrex, but just to go back to um, the Supreme Court, the body of Supreme Court precedent in over the past 15 years on patent issues. I mean, when I think about um, the, the tragedies, if you will, in, around the weakening of the patent system, it's the fact that we have a Supreme Court that fundamentally does not seem to understand why patents exist. Um, and I think eBay was sort of the, may have been, the, I could be wrong about this, Adam, but that was 2006. It was probably one of the first um, decisions by the Supreme Court that was sort of a bellwether of what was to come. And, um, you know, the decision was written by Justice Thomas, um, who I, I think not only mischaracterized um, the sort of history around injunctive relief, but fundamentally did not seem to understand why we have um, patent remedies based on injunctive relief. Um, and so, you know, the I, I think you could argue that the decision itself created some opportunity for for patent owners to continue to obtain injunctive relief. But the way that decision has been interpreted by um, the district courts, it's almost become a sort of um, categorical rule against right. injunctive relief. Which, again, if you read the opinion, Justice Thomas was instead of the working in assumption that you're entitled to an injunction, the working assumption is right. you're not. Right, and, and, and if you think about the role of the injunction, and this kind of goes back to your question about a litigation, I mean, the last thing a patent owner wants to do is engage in litigation, particularly if you're a startup. I mean, a litigation is, it's, it's almost game over. And now we've created a patent system without access to injunctive relief, where your only viable means of enforcing your patent right is to go to court. And for a lot of smaller entities, that just takes them out of the game altogether. Even for large companies like Qualcomm, you know, the prospect of getting an injunction in this country is is feels remote at best. And again, the role of the injunction is to create an incentive for users of your patented technology to come to the negotiating table. Um, so you don't have to go to court and you don't have to rely on damages, which despite what courts seem to believe, are not an adequate um, remedy uh, for uh, patent infringement. Um, so, you know, again, um, eBay to me was kind of the, a harbinger of um, a fundamental shift in this country's uh, treatment of patent owners and its view towards patent rights. And we've only seen that, um, that you know, that, unfortunately, that trend line to continue in a downward connection, a downward direction 
So when you talk about litigation, John, to me, it's just, it, it's, it's, first of all, I don't think there is any evidence of um, abusive litigation um, in, in any sort of meaningful uh, uh, extent in this country. If anything, I think the abuse, if you will, is um, companies uh, willfully engaging in patent infringement, knowing that the patent owner, unless it's a very large entity, is not going to be able to, to enforce their rights. So I would, if we're going to talk about abuse, let's talk about um, the abuse of property rights in this, this country that has really, um, I think, had a dramatic chilling effect on the willingness of the private sector and universities to make big investments in R&D. Adam, I want to make sure we get time for at least one audience question, but do you have any very quick thoughts on Arthrex? Yeah, just very yeah, very quickly. Um, so the Arthrex decision, which is now one of four U.S. Supreme Court decisions arising out of the PTAB, which was only one into operations in 2012, so this is uh, less, uh, less than 10 years ago, um, you know, reaffirmed and reconfirmed that, that patents, um, at least as, as under, uh, as, uh, implemented through the, this, this administrative agency and through the structures created in the American Events Act of 20, 2011, uh, which, uh, which created the PTAB, um, are really now part and parcel of the administrative state. Um, that the Supreme Court takes very seriously that the PTAB is an administrative agency, and so it's going to have applied to it all of the basic standards and operating norms uh, that are applied to other agencies, including political control by the agency head um, <clears throat> and extreme deference, uh, as we know by the term Chevron deference, um, to agency-type decisions. And that's a, and that's a type of, of, of indeterminacy and variance in kind of the, the, the nature of the rights um, that the patent system was up until 2011, largely segregated off from and excluded from. Um, patents, as I mentioned, were treated largely as private property rights. They were adjudicated in Article III courts. Um, they were they had all the norms and regular rules applied to them, as I found in my scholarship, from real property cases and other property cases. And so, again, this is the destabilization of the underlying legal infrastructure that's necessary to create the knowledge infrastructure, the innovation infrastructure, and the commercial infrastructure uh, that drives our innovation economy. Um, and so this is very concerning. Um, and because you won't see the effects of it for a very, you know, for a long, you know, for uh, another 10 years or so. Um, but 10 years from now, given, you know, people have a political memory often of like four months, <laughs> uh, you know, they won't, can make, they won't connect the dots, unfortunately. So I want to uh, see if we have any questions. Do we have any from our, uh, Jessica, does anyone, our virtual attendees have a question? Microphone doesn't appear to be working. So hopefully okay. we'll turn it on here shortly. Um, thank you. <laughs> no. What message can we infer from the Biden administration's likely nomination of Marcus Delgado to the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office? And the panel discussed at length the administration's disappointing TRIPS waiver position, but do you think that this is indicative of an overall position on IP from the administration or just an outlier? Who wants to, who wants to tackle with that one first? As the academic, I can quickly comment on the, the Delgado, potential Delgado appointment. Um, so uh, um, I don't know uh, Mr. Delgado personally, um, and, but I, I know of, of 
his employer, Cox, professionally uh, very well. Um, you know, they have long been a participant in the policy debates and legal debates that have created these narratives that have been highlighted, I think, very well by Andre and Lori that patents are, and, and intellectual property rights more generally, are a problem, are a blockade, a, um, are, you know, undermine creativity and innovation, and in fact, um, Cox engages in the type of predatory infringement uh, practices that Lori mentioned, uh, and we know that for a fact they had a $1 billion uh, co uh, copyright infringement judgment brought against them, uh, or, or actually a verdict reached against them um, through a trial. And so um, it's concerning um, that he is going to be put at the head of the agency that is in charge of developing intellectual property policy and particularly patent policy in this country, um, and especially given now the political control that the director has over the PTAB. Um, we could see uh, a, you know, a continuation of, what, of, of a lot of the problems that we've talked about and have been highlighted. Andre, Lori, any thoughts on that? As a, as a former nominee who's gone through the process, I'll just say don't believe the rumors until you see the actual, uh, the actual evidence. It's, it really is hard to tell. I don't, I don't know um, how accurate the rumors are. Um, I just know from the past that, you know, these rumors, uh, the vast majority of the time are less accurate than they seem, uh, but you never know. Um, the, the, the other part of the question about the overall trend of the administration, look, the WTO waiver proposal uh, as a general principle is an extreme situation. We are in the, in the middle of a historic pandemic. Um, uh, a lot of people are dying in the United States and around the world, and folks are scrambling to figure out uh, everything possible in order to save more people's lives. So there are extreme pressures um, on the administration and other leaders around the world to make the right decision here when it comes to um, uh, 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 treating more and more people in a more and more equitable kind of a way. So um, I don't know if I would infer um, a broader scheme or broader IP perspective from the administration from that decision alone. Um, the circumstances are just so um, unusual. Uh, but I would say that overall, I really would hope that the administration does uh, recognize the historic importance of IP and, and um, and overall, not take risks to do things that uh, are based on pure rhetoric and slogans uh, without actual evidence. Every these issues are so important, and it's at such a critical time for the United States and its competitiveness in the world. Uh, the system overall in the arch of history has worked so well before making any radical changes insist on evidence, both of the historic evidence that has happened, as well as the forward-looking evidence on which these decisions uh, are made. Uh, the United States must stay competitive and maintain our technological lead. And, uh, and all of these issues, IP in particular, feed directly into that. The stakes could not be higher. If I could just uh, add sure. another, again, agree completely. Um, I think it's, you know, I, I do think the TRIPS waiver, that being sort of the first 
IP-related decision, high-profile decision by this administration was very unfortunate, and, and I think it's also very unfortunate that that decision was, was made probably without any meaningful thought to the impact on patent rights, not just in this country, but, but globally. Um, you know, one of the things that often is not discussed in Washington as we debate issues around you know, patent litigation is what signal are we communicating to the rest of the world you know, historically, the U.S. has represented a kind of, of gold standard, if you will, for intellectual property, um, you know, played a hugely important role in encouraging other countries throughout the world to strengthen their uh, intellectual property systems, respect the, the rights of not just U.S. Uh, intellectual property owners, but, but other, you know, uh, inter uh, global intellectual property owners. And I, I worry that that the TRIPS waiver beyond um, you know, all of the deficiencies that Adam outlined sends a really problematic signal to the rest of the world in terms of um, the ability to essentially um, uh, appropriate or, or create compulsory license, licensing regimes around uh, important, important areas of technology. And I, I feel very confident just having lived these issues for so long that, that it won't, you know, the, how that decision will be construed um, will not be limited to the vaccine situation, but will be um, construed as a sort of broader, uh, you know, uh, opportunity to, um, to, to weaken patent rights, U.S. patent rights in important areas of, of innovation. So I just, I, I think it's, it's a disturbing decision on so many levels, but um, you know, I really hope the administration, uh, in addition to everything that that Aunt Adam and Andre have communicated, that they they recognize the important position that the U.S. plays in in sort of signaling um, uh, policy around um, intellectual property rights. Well, sadly, as often happens, I have at least a half a dozen questions that I would have loved to have asked that I didn't get to. And I'm quite sure that our audience uh, also falls into that category. But as, as, as often happens, the time has flown by. So please join me in thanking our panelists.